Hi, this is Shum Podcast, a new series where we talk about emerging vectors in art, theory, pop culture, tech and beyond. episode we talk with Alice Bucknell, artist and writer working with game engines and AI and running the new Mystics platform. Hi Alice, thanks for joining me for this podcast and we can start maybe with uh, you briefly introducing yourself mm -hmm. before we dive into your work. <laughs> yeah, sure, sure. Um, yeah, so I'm a British-American artist, writer, editor and curator. <laughs> Um, my practice kind of works at the parameters or crossovers of speculative fiction, ecology, technology, the environment, magic, and artificial intelligence. Um, and I have both a, a writing and a video art practice, which are really often, more often than not, extremely intertwined and <laughs> interconnecting. Um, and I'm currently based in London. So just now you mentioned you're not making just artworks, but you're also organizing programs, screenings, you're running a podcast series, and you're also writing about art for various magazines and journals. And while I was reading about your diverse practice online, it seemed to me that there are actually two main keywords that are most often used uh, to frame it. So one is world building and the other is magic. So... I'd like to talk about the intersection of the two and how this intersection manifests in your work. But um, let's start with unpacking each one of them first. So let's start um, with the first one, world building. It's been so super popular, not to say overused recently in arts. So I was wondering, why do you think this is such a hype now? And where do you see the potentials of this concept and the practice of world building? Mm -hmm. Sure, yeah. No, those are all great questions and big questions. Um, I would say that I noticed the term world building really being used quite a lot um, during the pandemic. And I thought that was really interesting. I mean, of course, because world building as a practice stems from the kind of sci-fi traditions, let's say, of like the 20th century. Um, but there has been this interesting collusion or uh, overlap in the contemporary art scene of uh, that practice, that like sci-fi practice of creating new worlds or alternative, imagining alternative worlds, um, both future worlds and present worlds. I think that's like a really important kind of conceit of world building. It doesn't necessarily have to be this like future speculative thing. It could also be as much about constructing alternatives to the present. But what I have seen in like the contemporary art world is this overlap between world building as a critical practice and new and emergent technologies, specifically gaming technologies. So game engines are essentially the software in which um, video games are produced. And the, you know, there's a handful of pretty famous ones, like most people know about Unity or Unreal Engine. 
Um, and the cool thing about those, um, those softwares is that it, it kind of allows you to produce a world very fast, <laughs> right? Whereas like with a sci-fi book, um, usually it takes hundreds of pages to kind of get stuck into that universe or that world. Whereas uh, in a game engine, like in a visual media uh, that can render a space, um, like a, a virtual space in real time, that, that sort of drop-in point or that crossing over the magic circle into the game world, into that alternative world is almost immediate. So I do think it's, it's interesting. I mean, artists are of course always like, um, they're, you know, like they're uh, practitioners of osmosis. They kind of reflect and absorb uh, cultural trends or um, impulses, let's say, that emerge in contemporary culture and, and kind of respond to those in real time and reproduce them. So I do think it was really interesting, of course, like at a time like the pandemic where everyone was stuck at home, it was like a slowing down of time. It was a reducing of the physical world. Um, and the osmo osmosis counterpart to that reduction is, of course, an expansion and dilation of the virtual world. And, and kind of also not just that, but thinking about larger systems, because I think world building is ultimately like a sort of systems practice or process. It's, it's the construction of a total environment in which like all aspects of, of that world from the sort of climate to inhabitants to, to narrative, um, to everything is kind of has to be considered uh, simultaneously. Right. So I think that, yeah, at a time at which our, the, the parameters of our physical world were sort of reducing themselves, um, it makes a whole lot of sense that, that this kind of uh, this turn into world building and this real interest in world building um, within like contemporary art practice became such a thing all of a sudden, um, or at least so visible. Yeah. You mentioned this systemic or ecosystemic approach, and in this perspective, the human agents are considered to be entwined within the larger ecosystem, and the lockdowns tried to actually ex extract us from it somehow, at least partially. So if isolating our bodies from the physical world kind of encouraged us to reach out and to interact with expanding virtual worlds, as you say, I was wondering, um, how does the world that a world-building project creates in a game engine reaches back into our physical world? How does it relate back and interact with mm -hmm. our bodies? So how do you see this relationship, this back and forth, and how does this interaction between these two worlds happen? Yeah, I think there's tons of interaction. Um, uh, a book that I think about a lot, especially since you brought up ecosystemic uh, fiction or ecosystemic kind of world building strategies is a book by Daisy Hildyard um, and it's called The Second Body and it's kind of trying to understand the position or role of embodiment in understanding the climate crisis so maybe non-verbal, non non-linguistic, more corporeal or experiential understandings of the climate crisis and how it plays out on the body. And it's important to say that it's not just human bodies, it's more than human bodies, it's non-human bodies. It's the second body is kind of the body of the planet, if you can imagine that. So so in, in the essay, Daisy kind of, yeah, uh, points out this, this sort of void or uh, chasm, I guess, between um, the ways in which we kind of exist in our own bodies, you know, we, we feel hunger, we feel pain, 
um, we uh, exercise, we cry, <laughs> we sleep, we don't sleep, uh, et cetera, et cetera. And it's all kind of like an individualistic model, right? In which um, the kind of limits of our experience of the world are defined by the limits of our bodies. But then the second body is this sort of shared or global body. Um, and Daisy basically argues that the, the role of art or, or the, the job of any sort of like creative and critical practice is to, to see where those two bodies kind of intersect and overlap and to reveal those interconnection points um, in which the kind of uh, the bodily experience of the first body can then kind of be superimposed or collapsed onto the larger ecosystemic body. And I do think that gaming and specifically the kind of gaming that you mentioned, like the not just the open world game of like, um, you know, like a, a traditional kind of like RPG gaming experience um, in which like the, the viewer kind of has agency like that. That's an important one. But also, I think gaming has the capacity to to go further through uh, technologies like AR or VR. Um, and while I don't use those in my practice, uh, yet, <laughs> it's something that I'm really interested in exploring, and I, I've I've seen it in in the work of uh, other artists out there who also use game engines, um, who also explore kind of ecological concerns and maybe the limits of of uh, linguistic or or language, and you know because. Um, uh, I think, you know, like, as I think Timothy Morton said, um, climate change is this kind of, like, hyper object, right? Like, it's it's impossible for us to kind of come to terms with just how massive um, and, and kind of structurally, like, paradigmatically uh, shifting it is um, in, in its in its stature. And um, I think, you know, there's a limit to where language kind of falls short in describing some of these uh, these understandings of the planetary and the ways that, that our notion of the planetary is changing in, in the midst of this climate crisis. And I do think that um, maybe a sort of body knowledge is what's valuable here and something that can be explored further through game engines and then also these, these more interactive kind of sensorial um, systems of knowledge that gaming and, and open world games and VR and AR enabled gaming can kind of open up. Mm-hmm. Let's talk about your projects now a bit. Um, world building is especially in art often discussed as an approach uh, of building alternative or new worlds, future worlds even. Mm -hmm. And I was wondering if that is the case also in your work and uh, what's the status of the worlds you build? Are they kind of like models or prototypes of sorts or representations? Mm -hmm. Sure. Yeah, I could talk about a couple projects. I'll talk about the Mars project, and I'll also talk about um, Swamp City, which was a project that I did last year. And before I start talking about those, um, just on the topic of alternative worlds versus future speculative worlds, um, a quote that I love and kind of ascribe to in both my art and writing practice is um, from Ursula K. Le Guin, uh, you know, a very kind of... Um, prestigious and celebrated uh, feminist speculative fiction writer. And um, she always was fond of saying that sci-fi and speculative fiction are not necessarily predictive practices, they're descriptive practices. And that I think comes from uh, an influx of 
anthropology, <laughs> I think, in her world. Like, both her parents were uh, famous social anthropologists. And, you know, she was really into the capacity uh, for speculative fiction to to not necessarily be this linear projection into the future, real or imagined, um, realistic or fantastical, and, and rather a kind of mirror um, that one can hold up to the present. Um, it kind of can create a level of abstraction to speak about really complex, almost unanswerable paradigms of the present, you know, whether that's like social, economic, political, ecological, um, representational, like, so, I mean, in, in her texts, which of course, you know, uh, have elements of sci-fi and elements of fantasy in them, like, um, uh, I don't know, like the left hand of darkness, for instance, or the dispossessed, it's like, uh, fictions that are technically taking place in other galaxies, but are ultimately tackling questions really close to home, questions about gender or political system or, or um, financial systems, like the end of capitalism and socialism. Uh, even though they're taking place in other galaxies, like they're ultimately um, kind of using uh, the, the, the magic, let's say, of, of a science fictional or a speculative fiction narrative to kind of um, both... Uh, dilate and like render abstract but also um simultaneously produce like really cutting commentary on on the real kind of questions and problems facing us in the present so i would say that my work is takes definitely takes a page from Le Guin's methodology <laughs> um and uh i think it also is kind of trying to look both forward and back so i mean many of the narratives are even though like they're ostensibly about the near future they're also kind of looking into um i don't know like uh uh kind of like wicked problems i guess of the present and also um more complicated notions of time, like deep time, for instance, like times that are not linear or times that are cyclical. Um, so for instance, with the Swamp City Project, it's a 30-ish minute long video that is set in Florida, uh, in the Everglades National Park. Um, and it's looking at the ways in which the climate crisis has been co-opted by capitalist enterprise, so sort of neoliberal approaches to saving the planet. Um, it also looks at this sort of uh, settler colonial complex of nature or the, the natural environment. So it's, it's very sort of interested in the history of Florida, uh, the ways in which the swamp in particular has been... Um, seen in the colonial imagination as this sort of unconquerable, um, really sort of noxious, poisonous, deadly environment that was super wicked, super contaminated, super unruly, impossible to kind of um, manage. Uh, and it sort of takes that colonial um, fear, let's say, of the swamp and then sort of dilates it and flips it on its head a little bit. So the narrative is set in this, this near future where the climate crisis has rendered like most of the United States uninhabitable. 
Um, New York City is underwater. LA is on fire. Um, all the kind of national parks have been destroyed. Uh, and in like an unlikely turn of events, the, this sort of um, infectious, like pestilence-ridden swamp uh, is is turned into and, and spun out as this sort of last uh, frontier of of pure nature. It's kind of the final, the the last place um, that people can go to really experience uh, the OG Mother Nature. So um, it sort of follows the line of that enterprise looking at both like greenwashing narratives and contemporary architecture and the ways in which architecture functions as a um, a kind of enterprise that that deals in in selling futures or, or selling kind of um, desired and um, like souped up versions of the future. So I mean, I, I actually before I became an artist, I I had a career in journalism, like a lot of architecture and art writing. So I kind of got to know these tropes and language systems and the sort of aesthetics of this, this like how like where, where architecture and speculative finance meet essentially. Um, and Florida is no stranger to that. I mean, Miami is like the capital of speculative finance, like both in like a sort of Silicon Valley crypto bro frontier, but also the ways in which properties that are very likely going to be underwater in the next 30 years are still being sold for millions. Um, if, uh, before the buildings are even, like, before the building site has even um, started. Like, all these kind of apartments and luxury penthouses designed by celebrity architects are all being bought up internationally, mostly to launder money. <laughs> um, so anyways, the project was really sort of looking at these, these very sort of... Um, yeah, kind of, like, tangible but uh, intangible at the same time... Um, problems and, and systems, I guess, that frame the present, that, that frame our idea of um, nature and this sort of fetish for um, pure nature, uh, the ways in which uh, capitalism and architecture have sort of um, uh, utilized this idea of nature and, and utilized this capacity to, to spin out sort of speculative futures as a sort of economic device. Um, and simultaneously, like while it's very sort of forward looking in its in its uh, setting, I guess you could say, um, the project is also looking at the ecologies and, and sort of climate narratives of the Everglades. So um, the the world swamp city is kind of presented by three in the video. It's presented by these like three main characters, um, one of which is the architect who's basically the like spokesperson for this speculative um, architectural development in the swamp, which is, is sort of like a, the most like luxurious, like um, uh, natural park or national park you can imagine. Like it's, it's simultaneously got all these like, uh, you know, eco-tourist uh, resorts that you can go stay in to like reconnect with nature. But then it's also building this like gigantic uh, eco smart city within the swamp itself. So, so you get, you get, you hear from the architect who's the sort of like spokesperson of, of this development initiative. And then you also hear from two of the park's non-human residents. Um, one of which is an alligator, um, that is basically refusing to, to leave the swamp. Um, because part of the, the, the corporation swamp cities enterprise is to like 
render a sort of hyper nature that's uh, simultaneously this like souped up vision of the natural world, but also kind of has all of its barbs or fangs removed. Uh, so so yeah, the swamp the the park is basically trying to like clear out any sort of dangerous um, or or like invasive kind of um, presence in the park that might scare the guests. So again, it's sort of this like neo-colonial enterprise. Um, so you, yeah, the alligator is basically like refusing to leave. And um, a lot of the video that's told through the alligator's perspective is, is really kind of like trying to pick apart and, and render visible through the video, like all of these different complexes that <laughs> the um, developers are working with and, and the sort of the ways in which they're vending and, and framing this, this uh, hyper-capitalist development as the sort of like solution to the climate crisis. Um, and then finally, uh, the third character is this um, bald cypress tree. And um, it's actually based on a, a real tree that was burned down um, in 2014. And it, it was the oldest and largest bald cypress tree uh, in the North American continent, if not the world, I think. Um, so it was like 3,500 years old and gigantic. And yeah, it... Um, was burned down accidentally um, and by uh, a person who basically was like trying to get high and dropped uh, her pipe and it was the middle of the dry season and the whole thing just like went up in flames um, in like literally like 10 or 15 minutes just gone um, and I got really interested in this this tree, um, both because it is this kind of ghost, and I, I think a lot of my work like uses these sort of characters um, that you know uh, were alive at some point and, and then uh, kind of come back. Like it's a bit of a sort of like hauntology in the narrative, I guess. Um, and I really like this concept of the ghost as this sort of. Uh, transgressive figure, right? Like it, it kind of ghosts operate fundamentally on like an extremely nonlinear time frame. Um, they don't obey laws of physics or like any of the sort of um, yeah, like hard rules that we have kind of set up for how the world works. I guess in like Mark Fisher's terminology, they're sort of both the weird and the eerie. They sort of force us to to kind of uh, like all of our logical systems implode, right? So, and I think that ghosts can be a really productive uh, presence in that sense. Like they they kind of distort a lot of our ideas around how the world operates, like a lot of sort of like Enlightenment era ideas around how the world works. So, anyways, in, in this in the in the um, the film, I I bring the um, the bald cypress tree back to life, but. Um, the the kind of narrative goes or the story goes that this tree has been resurrected by the scientists behind Swamp City and they've basically used um, an artificially intelligent neural net to kind of uh, re to kind of like grow the tree back to its original size and the tree becomes a sort of supercomputer or the sort of brain, I guess, of the park. So the tree is responsible for like monitoring the park's like carbon footprint and like heat index and like checking all the visitors, like the eco-tourists in for their like amazing resort stays. Um, but one thing that I was really interested in exploring with the tree uh, kind of goes into some of my interests in artificial intelligence at large, um, trying to understand uh, how an AI experiences time 
um, because in, in my experiments working with GPT-3, like a language AI, and then a bit of uh, my work in um, text-to-image APIs as well, uh, this idea of time being this linear thing seems very non-native <laughs> or like... Uh, yeah, I mean, it doesn't seem to be uh, it doesn't seem to be an assumption that's made by any of these um, systems. Like time kind of operates in a more like fractalized, uh, nonlinear way. And then I guess, of course, there's this question around like um, does AI have like a sense of self? Like, what are the limits of its understandings of its own intelligence? Um, so as a sort of metaphor or prototype um, of some of these questions, the, the, the AI-powered bald cypress tree in the video kind of has um, this pretty like uh, kaleidoscopic memory, right? Where it's simultaneously doing its duty in the park, like managing, micromanaging the park, but then it also has these like really intense flashbacks um, and sort of flash forwards in a way of of its its own death, like of it going up in flames, and it can't really understand that these things happened in the past. Um, which again is sort of maybe going back to some of the stuff we talked about earlier, like the second body by Daisy Hilliard, and also um, deep time, and also this idea of climate grief, um, the kind of barriers or borders between or like the sort of linearity of past, present and future get really confused. Um, they get muddled up, they get jumbled up um, in trying to sort of process this like idea of ecological grief. Um, I think uh, we're all kind of like that tree in a sense, I think. like um, And yeah, I guess the tree was simultaneously both speaking to the sense of um, yeah, like ecological grief, but also this this like broader question around the intelligence of artificial intelligence and like how it sort of processes nonlinear time. Um, so yeah, the narrative itself definitely operates in this like cyclical way. Like you you like there isn't actually much that happens in the story, but you're basically hearing the story from three different perspectives that are kind of overlapping and cutting between each other. Uh, and I think a lot of my work kind of works in that capacity, like instead of um, sort of constructing a linear story with like a very clear beginning, climax and end, I'm like much more interested in these sort of like cyclone stories or like cyclical stories in which maybe an event is kind of reinvestigated or reintroduced through multiple characters, like non-human characters and human characters and AI characters. Um, and to kind of let that expansion of, of time through multiple perspectives be the sort of the body of the story, I guess. Mm -hmm. So basically you create a world in a game engine and then traveling through that world, you record a video, um, which is then addressing all these topics that you've now described. And it consists of the storyline and um, it presents this world um, and the characters that populate it and so on. But um, it seems to me that it also has a meta layer to it. So somehow it seems that you're also reflecting on world building practice itself and certain problematic aspects of it and the problematic history it has. So some colonial undertones of world building projects, even contemporary ones, which are based um, on the ideas of progression and technological development and growth and exploration mm -hmm. 
for example, of even other planets and so on. So how the world building projects when done in art differ from these other future oriented projects? Um, is the main difference only in the vision of the world or is the difference also in the approach and the tools of how this world is built? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I feel like there's like two, there's like two different questions in there, but both of them I love. I mean, first of all, this idea of like meta world building or like a world building project that kind of looks at how world building, the sort of politics and like language, I think, of world building is really important too. Because one thing I forgot to mention earlier is like in addition to world building's history and like the science and speculative fictions, of course, it's also a term in like sociology, like the social sciences, right? Sociology, anthropology, like um, Gayatri Spivak, uh, I think actually coined the term um, and like uh, was using it in, in a way to sort of explain how colonial narratives are, are written and produced and then stamped onto the world, like how the colonizer basically uses the narrative strategy or device of world building to um, superimpose a colonial vision of the world onto um, an earlier vision of the world and, and therefore kind of, um, it's like, it's basically like a tool of like power, right? It's like a tool of language, um, but also politics. And um, I guess with the Mars project, like specifically, I was really interested in the roles that language plays in constructing worlds which, um, you know, in a sense runs counter maybe to some of the like high fidelity, uh, super advanced graphics that we have in like real time rendering software, um, which, yeah, oftentimes the sort of spectacle of, of the image of, of the world, of the, the environment sort of takes uh, the front row and maybe language gets the backseat. Um, so I was sort of interested in sort of looking at, yeah, uh, gaming, world building, the sort of economics of those systems, like, uh, which loosely fall under, like, entertainment, I guess, in, like, a more, like, normcore uh, gaming sort of practice or culture. Um, the ways in which that sort of also needs to be really um, uh, critically examined, like, carefully and critically examined, because, like you were saying, the line between, like, trend forecasting or future forecasting and speculative fiction is a really thin one, especially when you're using these technologies, um, which are so favored by a lot of sort of like futurists uh, and like quite like accelerationist as well cultures, like from like the Silicon Valley developers kind of creating these systems in which, which like myself and like other game engine artists use. Um, I think it's like really important to sort of push back against like where these aesthetics and where these visuals are coming from. And I think the cool thing that can happen if, if like you, you're able to sort of do that inside the game itself. So it's like a bit of like a Trojan horse type thing where you're like embodying and, and like utilizing the sort of um, really like hypnotic uh, aesthetics of a game engine in order to sort of like critique maybe some of the the visions and politics and ideologies behind a lot of well in my world a lot of like speculative architectural projects like such as you know the numerous um renderings we've seen for um plans to create human habitats on mars 
like specifically I'm thinking about Elon Musk's Nua City, which uh, appears in um, the Martian world, word for world is mother, the project that I made. Um, and it's this kind of, yeah, glittering mega city uh, nestled within the cliffs of Tempe Terra, a particularly mountainous region of Mars. And um, it's designed to be this like ecological smart city that is getting around a lot of um, policies and space law and uh, space economics uh, in which le- from like a legal standpoint, um, no one is allowed to no no individual or country is allowed to actually um, inhabit another planet or to modify its surface area or geology. So the kind of um, you know mainstream idea of like terraforming, which Elon Musk is also a big fan of, uh, which is basically the idea of um, modifying Mars's climate and surface in order for it to become a sort of backup planet for humans to live on, a sort of planet B. That, from like a space law perspective, is not okay. It's like a no-go zone. It is definitely illegal. <laughs> but uh, with Nua City, the idea of building a city underground, like building it into the cliffs so that you're not actually modifying the surface of the planet, and you don't have to like um, basically engineer a new climate for the planet either in order to have humans live on it. Like these are kind of different like loopholes um, that I definitely see in in some of like some of this sort of like futurist dialogue around this idea of um, humans inhabiting Mars or any other planet one day. Um, but another big thing I think I see in in these like future uh, forecasts let's say, for like an interplanetary civilization is, is this problem of language. Um, and the, pro- the, the, the project, the Martian word for world is mother, is really interested in this question of language, in the role of language in building worlds and thinking about new and alternative futures. Um, and it's kind of looking at the language that we have already to describe our relationship to space, our relationship to other planets. And the sort of main argument of, of the project, I guess, is, is that the language that we have right now isn't enough. Um, the language that we have to talk about space is incredibly anthropocentric. It's more often than not extremely neocolonial. Like we talk about colonizing Mars or settling on Mars. Um, All of these kind of verbs and terminologies that have very clear connections and origins to a lot of like manifest destiny type settler colonialists um, language strategies um, and, and yeah, like world building strategies, I guess you could say, to go back to Spivak's understanding of world building. So the project was really interested in... um, taking some of these sort of narratives around um, post, post-Earth um, humanity or like interstellar uh, society or interplanetary economics um, and to kind of look really critically at some of the language systems being used here, to look really critically at the, the current legal frameworks that exists um, for 
exploring space. So, I mean, basically, there's like three main documents. There's like the Outer Space Treaty, which I think was signed in the 60s, the Moon Treaty, which was signed, I think, in the 70s, and the Antarctic Treaty, which was signed, I think, around the same time. And those three documents are kind of the like golden trio of how people are approaching space law and how people are approaching both um, exploring outer space, creating human habitats on other planets, but also just, like, um, economic forecasting of outer space, like uh, asteroid mining, for instance, or, um, you know, indeed, like, mining the surface or um, uh, the underground kind of, um, uh, yeah, like, mining resources off from other planets. Um, So the project was kind of looking at, yeah, like, the the linguistic parameters framing our understanding of how humans relate to other planets and also the language and the legality of um, current space law that sort of sets the parameters for like what is and isn't possible, at least in like the relatively near future before new laws are made. Um, And I think the project for me was like really about kind of looking at these these linguistic parameters and and trying to think of alternative language strategies and maybe like um, in my desire to kind of create a different language for talking about outer space and our relationship to it. I also was really interested in um, like uh, the role of language AIs or artificial intelligence systems that are specifically tied to um, text, right? And um, if, if sort of using some of these AI systems uh, to, to create an alternative language or an alternative narrative for Mars could potentially be a productive way of thinking about the role that language plays in the construction of worlds and futures. And if there could also be a bit of kind of self-criticality built into the system by like utilizing um, texts and language that we already have, like like um, whether that's like press releases from SpaceX to clauses from the Outer Space Treaty to like science fiction narratives like that were written about um, exploring or experiencing outer space uh, to like medieval mystics uh, to um, speculative uh, vocabularies and alphabets like written by French um, mystics that, that who believe they could commune with aliens on Mars. So it was kind of using all these and like sampling all of these different sort of linguistic strategies around um, Mars and our relationship to the red planet, uh, feeding that into the AI system to both get it to sort of speculate on possible future relationships to the red planet, but also um, kind of almost as an attempt to sort of get out of a certain like linguistic framework where language necessarily has to make sense, <laughs> I guess. Um, so, yeah. You, you mentioned creating a new language to talk about the future of Mars. Um, so in your experience of working with machine learning, how it can like break down, as you said, the language as some kind of like a sense-making system? Um, 
Um, where do you see the possibility for something new to emerge? And why is this newness so important? Like just um, also thinking about the titles of some of your projects, you know, the new mystics, the new worlds. Um, how do you understand this newness and how do mm-hmm. you place it within your practice and like in general? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I think I'll answer the first question first. Um, and I think it's a really interesting question to be asking especially as we're sort of uh, gearing up for the release of GPT-4, the the new version of GPT-3, which is um, a uh, predictive text model that was produced by OpenAI um, and I think became public in, I think, earlier this year. Um, and it's also the AI model that I use both in my video projects and in my writing projects, including New Mystics. And I think this question of like where the AI itself begins to break down, um, that's certainly like where I find most of my inspiration in in where it kind of um let's say like eludes language or uh, language as a sort of productive process in working with these AI systems sort of buckles or splinters or stops functioning in the way it should. And that to me is a really exciting experience in working with these systems, but I also think it's going to be an increasingly rare one, especially as GPT-4 once GPT-4 is uh, perfected and released into the world. With GPT-3, it's like really hard to get it to to sort of leave traces of the machine presence because it's designed basically to be a predictive text model that can write anything from um, a film script to like a news article to an academic textbook uh, to like a mock interview. And it's incredibly well-trained. Like, it has, like, something like 17 billion parameters. It's been trained on everything published online, I think, up until 2017 or so. Um, It has access to, like, all of the, like, Google's digital library. So, like, every book that's ever been, like, scanned and uploaded, like, it has technically uh, can can access the... um, the information they're in. So, I mean, it's designed to basically to not betray its hand and to be a human, to not betray its machine hand and, and to be a sort of human-like uh, writer or conversationalist. But for me, and I think for many of the other artists that use GPT-3, the really exciting thing that happens is is when it kind of blunders or errors um, and sort of when it stops making sense. Um, and and in, its, in its sort of drive to construct the perfect sentence um where it kind of gets so sometimes it'll get quite like caught in in its own output so like one thing that I see when working with it is like it'll instead of instead of like uh finishing a sentence it might just take an excerpt of a sentence and then say it like a thousand times (laughs) and so it gets into this almost like recursive like feedback loop where it can't get out of um whatever kind of sentence it's trying to finish or sometimes it, the the like punctuation and grammar of a sentence will just start breaking down, so it becomes almost like this sort of poetry, or like you know like uh, sentences and and words will like run into each other, 
um, or or it will just kind of just stop making sense from a very sort of grammatical uh, text text based perspective. But then the the concepts that it's sort of doling out will, can sometimes veer into something that's quite like prophetic or mystical in a way. Um, I notice this a lot in the New Mystics project where whenever it starts talking about like dream states or uh, reinterpreting an artist's work, because um, obviously it can read about an artist based on what it can gather online for, about their practice and about their projects. And then I also, in the New Mystics project, I also feed it, um, I train it on a, a conversation that, that me and another artist have. So um, I would say that like in using GPT-3, especially in the New Mystics project, the, the interesting thing that I think caused quite a bit of its breakdown and, and it's sort of bending into or leaning into something that at times felt quite mystical in its uh, refusion of, of uh, speaking a language that was grammatically correct or um, conceptually understandable <laughs> is that GPT-3 was basically uh, tasked with reading a conversation for, uh, between two people and then positioning itself like between those two authors or speakers. So it has this slight kind of like schizophrenic personality, I would say, like in the Numistics texts, um, where it's like jumping around all the time between different subject matters, kind of constellating them. It's sometimes, uh, you know, like a sponge, it can kind of absorb a lot of the grammar or... Um, expressions like the phrases that an artist might use or the way that they might kind of talk um, because it's you know it, it has access to the transcript as well as information on the artist's work so sometimes it will like absorb some of the sort of like uh text personality i guess of the artist um but at the same time it's like not the artist it's like has like you know a much broader kind of parameter in terms of where it's sourcing its information and the kinds of responses it's generating to the questions that I would ask it. Um, and I think it, yeah, like specifically in the New Mystics project, it really sort of, the AI system sort of broke down in the way that it's functioning. It really wasn't functioning well from like a machine learning perspective. Like oftentimes its answers to these questions that I would ask it would be caught somewhere between the artist's world and some like, crazy projection <laughs> or like ride that it was going on based on the conversation that the artists and I had. And to me, that was like the most exciting use of the technology. So like kind of like its capacity to explode language um, is something that I'm personally really interested in. And also that I'm kind of increasingly mourning <laughs> with the imminent arrival of GPT-4. I mean, in a way you could say it's really similar actually to um, the relationship between like, you know, like the latest version of Unreal Engine, UE5, and the older version, like UE3 or UE4, where the graphics just aren't as good. Um, there's like a glitchiness that's inherent to, to a video work that's produced inside of UE3 or UE4, like an older version of the software. Whereas uh, UE5, which is like the software that I used for the Mars project, is like you know, like glittering, like 4K renderings, like everything kind of runs perfectly. 
Um, it's apparently going to be used in Hollywood to sub out the need for actual, um, like, production studio stuff. Like, everything can kind of be created inside of the game world. There's, like, no need to, like, fly a crew out to, like, a set, like, a, you know, a specific setting. Like, everything can kind of be rendered inside of the game engine. And, like, that's sort of Unreal Engine's, like, future promise to like Hollywood is that you you will never have to like send a crew anywhere ever again or post produce anything so it, it can all be as good as real or better than real in in the software um but then I think the kind of the what you give up in transitioning into this like hyper reality is the aesthetics of the glitch and what the glitch can do how the glitch can collapse or problematize or create fictions like productive and affective and quite transportive um fictions in in a game world and and kind of what a sort of lo-fi aesthetic what a sort of pixelated messy approach when when technology kind of fails at its task of replicating reality what that can actually teach us and what new forms of knowledge and experience that can open up. So I think in a similar way to like, yeah, the low, like the generative capacities of failure or glitching in video game engines. I would also say that the magic for me with GPT-3 is like a similar sort of broken hammer philosophy or like you know, when the machine sort of fails at its task of replicating human-like language what actually can open up in that space um when we think about language as not just a kind of tool of communication or a a means of transacting or siphoning off knowledge to different people like what happens when language actually becomes a sort of affect or a feeling or an emotion what happens when language is illegible or uh, impossible to decipher. Like, where does that leave us as as human beings, as an animal species that depends so much on language for both a sense of self and a sense of understanding the world around us and categorizing it? If if our mastery of language is destroyed or distorted or disrupted by the the very systems that we produce to help us better manage it. Like, what does that actually teach us about a non-human way of understanding the world or like a non-linguistic way of understanding the world? I think these are all really important and really powerful questions that I think in a way machines behaving badly can actually open the door to as a portal. These glitches sounds a lot like what you were mentioning when you were talking about the ghosts the ghost of the tree uh, haunting your your um, swamp city. So somehow something we can't make sense of through the rational tools or tools offered by, let's say, um, rational mind, but maybe some other practices or knowledges can help us get in touch with it. So here we can maybe address the other keyword, which I mentioned at the beginning, which is magic. Um, I was reading this article that you also have linked on your website by Amy Hale, 
she wrote for Burlington Contemporary and she, she also mentions and talks about your work and she situates your work in the context of practices that she describes as queer feminist esoteric futurism. So maybe this esoteric part, you can tell me a little bit about where you find it or address it in your work. How do you see magic as reference or perhaps even practice relevant for you and what you do as an artist? Sure. Yeah. Um, I think when I think about magic in my work, especially with the New Mystics projects and also with like the script writing and the the different forms of AI collaborations that I stake out in the work, um, it ultimately comes down to an approach that could be likened to chaos magic. <laughs> um, and I use AI basically to crack open a space in the construction of narratives that I think that I have kind of less control over, I guess you could say. Like it's designating or handing over quite a bit of narrative authority to um, the hands of machines. Um, so another kind of um, approach, I guess, like I think uh, the author Kay Alado McDowell, who uh, wrote Pharmaco AI, which was the first book co-written with GPT-3, they liken um, the use of language AIs as a bit like pulling a slot lever. Like you don't really know what's going to come out at the end. Um, and each time you pull it, like it's going to, even if you feed in the same exact input sentence or um, ask it the same question, like you will get a different answer every time. And to me, like, I really like that idea and I definitely see the connection between that approach to collaborating with AI and the practice of chaos magic, which is to find meaning in the, the kind of happenstance or um, the accidental, right? Like in the sense that uh, it's something that can't, like chaos is something that can't be controlled, but it's something that can act as a guide into something deeper or somewhere deeper. <laughs> so I would say that with both the New Mystics project and the script writing for the Mars project, a lot of it was kind of handing over quite a bit of narrative direction to um, the language AI systems I was working with at the time. And the New Mystics project to me was interesting because it was basically a three-way collaboration. Um, and I guess it maybe you can tie that into Amy's like feminist approach to like queer esoteric feminism. Um, but this idea of they're not in the same way that like the, the, the narrative, I guess, of my video works or the, the text of New Mystics is very nonlinear. Like it doesn't have any sort of um, progressive plot point from A to B. It's, it's more like a sort of circle or cycle. I'm also very interested in not having a hierarchy in terms of um, the kind of narrative producer or, or narrative agent in, in the worker worlds. So the New Mystics project to me was really interesting because instead of it just being me speaking with GPT-3 and then me going off and like writing a text, it was actually this sort of like three-way conversation um, between artist, writer, and GPT-3. And here I'm identifying as the writer. 
So with each of the new mystics texts, um, it would kind of start out as a conversation between myself and the artists. We'd talk for maybe like an hour or so. The talks were always very casual. Like we'd talk a bit about their work, but also like what they were up to and how they were feeling that day. Um, and the goal was to kind of just, I don't know, have a dip into their world that didn't feel so focused on their their work. I mean, it was about their work, but it was also just about like them. <laughs> and then we would take the transcript of those conversations and I would feed it into GPT-3. And then I would basically continue the conversation that I had been having with the artist, but um, GPT-3 would kind of be the, the main respondent at that time. And yet it was responding to a conversation that had already happened in the past between two people. So it was this kind of negotiator, you could say almost, between myself and the artist, but it was also like projecting something new and something kind of different because it wasn't, you know, a direct uh, replica or only limiting itself to the confines of that conversation because GBT3, of course, has this expansive um, knowledge system through all of its data sets. So in a way, like the sort of non hierarchy of that relationship was instrumental to how the texts were produced because if you read any of the new mystics texts you can kind of distinguish between the ai and the human writer in the sense that the contributions in each text from gpt3 are written in italics and the normal typeface um is written by either me or or the artist. But beyond that, that kind of um, subtle distinguishing factor, there's really no hierarchy or order <laughs> or like semblance of order in how the texts are written. Like it's incredibly um, uh, like kind of evolving between different forms of writing. So sometimes the texts will read more like a poem or sometimes they'll read more like a sort of traditional art text. Sometimes it'll sound like a biology textbook. Sometimes it'll sound like a, a sort of myth or piece of folklore. And it's always sort of jumping between these different formats or frameworks. Yeah, but if it weren't for the italics in which the GPT-3's answers are marked, um, it would sometimes be impossible to tell whose answer am I reading, which is actually interesting, right, that GPT-3 is being so good at imitating our art language, or perhaps it can actually participate in co-creating it, like generating some new insights and some new meanings. I would also say like it's almost the opposite. Like it taught me how how kind of artificial our own language is as well. Exactly. Because I would say like working with the AI, especially when I go into like heavy hardcore production phases of a project where I'm working with it every day for like weeks or months at a time. Um, within a, like literally within a few days, I begin to notice my own language system kind of breaking down and being like metabolized by GPT-3. And I start noticing both the way that I talk to other humans, uh, the way I talk to myself, the way I write and think even, it kind of leans into a lot of the 
the sort of like so-called like clunky or like inaccurate or like alien these are all massive scare quotes on them ways that an ai a language system powered by ai you know quote-unquote talks or quote-unquote writes um and it kind of reminds me how sort of plastic and inherited and modifiable our own language system is and i guess maybe leading into like a bit of the esoteric uh idea like each of the texts that you read on the new mystics platform kind of comes out of this like phase change or state change i guess i would describe in my own writing process where after having spent so many hours like conferring with GPT-3, um, I would sort of use this sort of, um, this weirded language or this sort of un unbounding or unsticking of myself to kind of more conventional, like quote unquote human language structures and, and use this time that I kind of felt myself tapering back or sinking into the language of the machine to then sort of try to find new approaches and connections between what the machine was saying and what I was saying or what the artist had said. So it was kind of all, all the texts that you see were sort of written in this sort of like altered state, I would say, where I had spent like so much time with the AI that I was sort of almost like trying to like create a neural net inside my own brain. So again, it was this like way of um, maybe unbinding or like creating a non-hierarchy or an anti-hierarchy between so-called artificial intelligence and so-called natural intelligence or human intelligence and also between AI language and human language because ultimately they're both on a spectrum. Um, and I think the most exciting thing is actually where both parties, the AI and the human, can kind of meet in the middle or like dip into each other's worlds and that layover or that crossover to me is where the really exciting kind of like uh, corruptions <laughs> or like distortions of language happen. Using AI tools to unbound yourself from a conventional human language structures sounds a bit like some other maybe more ancient practices of using substances as some kind of technologies you ingest for altering the state of consciousness in order to access alternative worlds. Yeah, I was actually at a talk the other week here in LA um, uh, and one of the participants, it was kind of a talk around like, you know, the creative potentials of AI and whether AI can be creative and like what it means to collaborate with non-human um, machines, machine intelligence um, in kind of producing creative work. And uh, the topic, of course, like on, <laughs> I feel like a lot of people's minds these days is like the text to image APIs, like Midjourney and Dolly, which of course have now become so ubiquitous um, in creative processes and so kind of open and easy, like so user-friendly, right? In, in the ways that they produce images. And um, there was a really interesting comment that had been made that was kind of, someone was basically arguing that these these text-to-image APIs are basically like hallucinations. <laughs> um, and the reason for that is that they sort of um, really intensely expedite or accelerate this, this natural uh, kind of organic, let's say, um, capacity to, to imagine and to, to conceive of imagery in our head, right? Like when you read a sentence, like the dog tripped over the squirrel. Like you immediately get that picture in your head, but um, 
the crazy thing with like these these image uh, processing and tech text to image um, APIs is that they kind of outsource and outperform that uh, process of imagination, that process of visualization for you. So yeah, this person was kind of basically saying that that because there's almost been like the the middleman or like the the sort of like um, production process of like the ways that humans sort of organically give images to text is almost being like outsourced or outperformed <laughs> um, and how, how kind of ubiquitous that accelerated process is going to become. Like it kind of feels up until it's fully naturalized, it feels a bit like hallucinating, like where, you know, like you send like a text into the ether and then uh, the image that comes back is kind of this like extension or like evolution of an image in your head, like far beyond what you could really think of like right now. But I guess in like I, all that is to say like, yeah, I think that this this idea of like a feedback loop or like this idea of recursion, of course, which is like a term used in machine learning all the time. It's like a two way street, right? Like it's technology is never this kind of isolated, um, cool sort of physical sort of thing that's separate from humans like the human brain is a technology um but also the technology that we're creating has a sort of kickback or has a sort of feedback loop upon us and it will obviously and ultimately modify the ways that we think and move through the world like it's not just a technology that we build to serve us like it also impacts us in equal turn yeah thanks alice so much for this talk I have just one last question before we conclude. Uh, you are working on the second season of New Mystics mm -hmm. as we speak. And I was wondering if you can say a bit more about the whole project. And I'm especially curious about uh, the title. So why the New Mystics? And who are these New Mystics um, that you're presenting and collaborating with? Yeah, sure. I mean... The title actually came out of an essay that I wrote for Moose Magazine, I think in like 2019 or so. And um, the premise of the text was basically just looking at the work of artists who are using generative technologies um, like machine learning or AI or game engines, like, um, and kind of figuring out ways to use those technologies in a way that radically decenters the human and that can kind of open up to a type of generative or mystical practice. So, I mean, these are artists for whom like ideas around mysticism or magic is kind of a central part of their practice, but on an equally central terrain is the, the advanced technologies that they're using to explore these ideas or these myths and also kind of generate new myths in the process. So the text I wrote for Moose, it was just like a print, uh, you know, 2,000 words or so, something that felt kind of fine, but, <laughs> but definitely not the right format to be talking about these ideas in more depth and maybe in a more experimental way. And that was, to me, like the whole point of the New Mystics project that you see online today, which is to basically find a form of writing and a form of thinking through language that matches the, the kind of wild experimentation with technology that you see in these art practices or these artists' own practices. So the idea of like a sober, you know, like uh, 
magazine article that's printed and can never change, it's kind of stuck in time and also relies so heavily on language, felt really like counter to what many of these artists are making in their work, which is a sort of um, altered state typically produced through technology or like a collaging of technological systems that can ultimately bypass language and open up something more esoteric or mystical in its production and in its experience of that work and that world. So yeah, the New Mystics Project was almost trying to take a methodological framework or a way of approaching a work or a kind of artistic practice and house it within a suitable kind of framework that reflected the intention of the artists in a much more open-ended way. Um, and yeah, in that sense, like the New Mystics Project has kind of spiraled out of its own parameters. Like when I first uh, was developing it last year, I thought there would only be 12 artists and I mean, five of which, you know, I had basically written about already in the original essay for Moose. Um, and then the other seven, it was kind of like an ex a, a, like extension of, of that thinking. So like artists using AI or game engines or creating like generative art that could loosely sort of be seen as... Um, leaning into or interested in ideas around like magic, ritual, folklore, or the mystical or esoteric. And yeah, I mean, it was such a fun ride and such a wild time <laughs> and such a kind of generative, I thought, like way of thinking and writing with these artists and also like with a, a sort of non-human intelligence um, that I felt like it kind of had to keep going. <laughs> So yeah, I'm currently working on the second season. The season actually, it has four artists this time around. Um, those artists are Evan Ifakoya, Himali Singh Swan, Bones Tan Jones, and Ops Social Club. And it's four artists that I worked with over this past summer for a program at the Somerset House in London called New Worlds, which was basically just an ex in like in terms of its title, it was just like a it was kind of a, a collision, I guess you could say, between the New Mystics title and this topic of world building that you and I have talked about a lot today. And that, you know, could also be described as a core tenant of all of these artists' practices. And yeah, in the New Worlds series, it was basically like a series of five events. It was just an opportunity to explore in a much deeper and sort of interpersonal and embodied way the practices of some of the New Mystics artists. And, you know, it ranged from thematics such as like exploring sound as a world building technology to thinking about non-human ecological storytelling to thinking about the political and social dimensions of live action role play and the kind of construction of narrative environments to imagine alternative worlds. The idea is to sort of wrap up the second season, uh, this end of the this side of the calendar year, and then after that, I am hoping to continue the New Mystics project because it really doesn't. I don't feel like it's done with any of us yet. <laughs> uh, but I mean, a quite an interesting question or thing for me is going to be like, you know, when GPT four comes out, um, will it move into working with that? new version of the language AI, or will it stick to the original source of GPT-3? So I'm excited to kind of see how this project evolves. And I think that is one of the cool things about working with all these 
technologies that kind of are on the precipice or cliff face <laughs> of a constant sort of evolution or upgrade, right? Is like the nature of the work changes when the technology itself changes. Uh, and this goes back to, I think, what we were saying about like technology being this sort of mirror world, <laughs> but also a sort of portal into new worlds. Like it's always evolving and changing. I'm Tiasha Pogacar from Shum, and this was Shumpod with Alice Bucknell. Thanks for listening. <laughs>